the guy comes up to me, he says, I know who you are. I'm excited about what you're doing, yada, yada, yada. And I said, okay, that's great. Let me get your business card and let's have a conversation later on. What ended up happening from that is that what I didn't know what I was walking into was that I was walking into having a relationship with probably one of the most powerful people in the economics profession. So what ended up happening was that I sent him an email. He sent me an email back. And we had this short email exchange, which resulted in me eventually when I visited Boston, having a face-to-face meeting with him. And from there, this guy has been like my biggest advocate. I mean, you don't have to be someone who puts themselves out there like, oh my God, I'm talking to everybody. No, like you can really be intentional about who you talk to. It's about what you do after you talk to them. That really counts. Anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Especially with what you said about email, especially professors, academics, you know, or people who are are so-called, you know, accomplished, powerful people, like they get so many emails that just like the drudgery of going through your inbox and having to like consider answering emails from people that you don't know, like who wants to do that? (laughs) But if you catch them at a conference, right? And face to face, I mean, how much harder is it for someone to say, no, I don't want to talk to you to your face in front of other people than it is for them to say, no, I don't want to talk to you in their inbox where like they're the only one who knows that you were in their inbox. You know what I'm saying? Right, exactly. So I guess with, yeah, with Twitter, like if someone wants to, you know, chime in and join a conversation, you know, do you have practical advice? Like I know there's like outrage culture and some people, they like to sort of just like yell essentially into the void on Twitter, but then some people are not really, they're not really inclined to that. They're sort of more quiet people. What do you recommend for people who have sort of different ways of approaching conversation? What is the best way for them to enter a conversation that they may not be necessarily expert in, but they have something they could say? What it boils down to is being genuine and being your whole self. I say that with caution though, right? So like, if you're racist, like, don't do that. (laughs) You know, like, obviously, but (laughs) because you will get chewed out. Like, that's like a guarantee. So for me... One of my friends recently asked me, they said, Anna, how did you amass so many followers? If I could give y'all a practical tip, here's something you have to do this sparingly. If I were you, I would start a discussion on Twitter. That means your tweet has to end in a question mark, right? You ask a question to the space, you tag some spaces, you tag some folks who might have a little bit of pull, and you let it go. And that's what I did. I think that's a really great way to start conversations and to start meaningful conversations on a platform like Twitter where things are very flat and everybody's kind of looking at each other at the same level. Um, And your pedigree is like irrelevant, really, in the Twitter space. Because there's people who, for example, have never been published in like a top five econ journal, in my case, but have a lot of followers on Twitter versus people who are like, consistently cited and have like no followers and that's just to say that in this space you can be yourself your whole self and you'd be surprised how people respond to that right people love authenticity if you are being real about what you care about people will respond accordingly right and so 
yeah, some practical advice is just to start conversations with, you know, a tweet about like, you know, what do you guys think about this? Or what do you guys think about this? And then tag some folks or tag some spaces with hashtags. Um, another thing is to engage with senior folks on Twitter. So if you see people with a lot of followers and you like what they're talking about, respond, <laughs> respond. Because what, like nine times out of 10, that person will respond back to you if they're not pompous and they want to have like a good discussion and they might even follow you back. And that is where a lot of the people that I've met in the last year have been from Twitter. I haven't even met them in person yet. I, I think I met like my first person in, from Twitter like three months ago. So yeah, guys, just engage. <laughs> Twitter isn't as clicky. Like literally anyone from the field you're interested in could become interested in your conversation, even if you don't really have like a lot of followers or et cetera. Minorities entering spaces where they're minorities, right? <laughs> um, like this idea that, okay, I'm a minority, you know, I, I like this idea of lift as you climb, but you know, I, I've worked so hard to get to this space. It was so difficult for me to get to this space. And so now I sort of just want to focus on my work and I don't really want to expend a lot of energy pulling up people, you know, quote unquote beneath me. Um, I want to focus on my work. I want to excel. So I, this won't have been a waste of time. All that hard work and suffering won't have been a waste of time. And, and then also you think, well, doesn't the majority in my field, aren't they the ones who, who are really supposed to be responsible for bringing in minorities because it's like, you're all the ones with the power. Like, why is the onus on me, the minority, to do that? I mean, what is your response to that sort of mindset? Wow. It's a powerful question. Thank you so much. <laughs> so, you know, it's a, it's a difficult question, right? Because I feel like People are absolutely justified in saying that I don't need to be doing diversity work because I am diversity, <laughs> right? Me being here is enough. Like y'all, you know what I'm saying? And I have to focus on my work. Like my colleagues, their hobbies are skiing and cooking. And my hobby is trying to get more people who look like me into the space, make it make sense. And then also what ends up happening is that people get penalized for that, right? They don't even get credit for that as service. It's like, oh, I mean, I guess you did that, but like, you're the black guy. We expected that. So I, you know, the question is twofold, right? So the first part is there is value in mentorship. So even if you've arrived, even if you want to focus on your work, I think you still need to make time for mentorship, right? And a great person... I can look to who has done this tremendously well is my my own mentor, my own research mentor, Dr. Peter Q. Blair, who's an assistant professor at the School of Education at Harvard and who is a junior faculty member with a full out lab of students, including myself. So he has several graduate students and then me. And he's also looking for potential summer students in time. But that's a really he's a really great example of somebody who is like a really excellent research like he's a rising star in economics and people are like looking at this guy and like he knows what he's doing but then he is coupling it with mentorship and i'm not even trying to do it for myself let me bring all these young folks into it 
that are also interested in doing work and let them train the next generation and so forth. And so this is, again, you know, when you lift as you climb, what, I, what I'm saying with that is not, you're not lifting everybody, right? It might just be one person that you end up lifting, but the whole point is that that person would be lifting somebody else. And so as you are lifting and everybody's lifting together, everybody eats, everybody's moving up. And that is really what, that is not something hard to do. I don't think, right? I'm a, I'm a pre-doctoral student. I'm running a nonprofit. I'm taking classes and I managed to do it, right? So, you know, I mean, obviously I'm not a professor, <laughs> so I can't say those are the same thing, but like, you can find time. If you want to make time, you'll make time. And the thing is, you can also do it in ways that are not so obvious. So I know of a professor, I don't know this individual personally, but you don't hear her talking about diversity work too much. She's not out here saying, you know, I'm black, blah, blah, blah. But she, she or he, <laughs> rather, or they, I'm going to make it really ambiguous, they make it ambiguous with respect to like how they're into like how they're lifting as they climb, right? They're not being so obvious about it. But if you look at their committees, this person stays putting people on. Like they'll bring a couple black people into this committee. They'll say, I think that black person should do this. And all of a sudden you blink and you're like, wait, <laughs> this room has a little bit more color than I expected. And that is also a way to lift as you climb, integrating that diversity into your research excellence. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. And a lot of people like to pretend like they are. And so then the other side of this is institutions and allyship and power and all how all of that works together to reinforce this idea of diversity falls on those who are diverse like or making the space diverse. That being said, I feel like institutions need to think critically about what they are putting forth for diversity efforts and they will literally just say diversity efforts they won't talk about inclusion which is critical and what that means is that you need to think about as an institution why isn't my institution diverse what is the pipeline what is the pathway into this institution so i'll give you an example in economics and actually the biomedical sciences, they have something called research assistantships or post-baccalaureate opportunities. Oftentimes they serve as a pipeline to graduate programs at these respective, in these respective fields. If you have the power to decide who gets into those programs and you are actively choosing to not admit underrepresented minorities, even if they're qualified. That's a cause of concern. 
What people don't like to talk about when they talk about diversity is they don't like to talk about gatekeepers. Gatekeepers are real, y'all. They are real. People who don't believe that certain people deserve to be in the space, and so they literally stand at the gate and say, you can't come in like a little troll. <laughs> literally, the little trolls, you can't come in. You don't look like me. You don't have the same credentials as me. Who do you think you are? Blah, 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 blah. I encountered a gatekeeper recently. I won't say their name. That gatekeeper, that gatekeeper looks like Boo Boo the Fool because they rejected me from an opportunity and I ended up at Harvard. You look stupid. <laughs> and I remember a mentor of mine was like, they look foolish because not only did you go somewhere else, you went somewhere better than that opportunity. And now they wish that they had really considered you. And I think that really boils down again to this idea of people not believing that excellence exists outside of the white paradigm. That because if you're not white, there's no way you could be objectively excellent. You must have gotten here on a crutch. Mm, or you must have gotten here on a crutch. That's what I say. <laughs> because if you know what I'm saying? Right? So I think that, like, institutions have to come to terms with the reality that if your space doesn't look like the world, then your space is fundamentally racist. Like, I will say this. The City Collective is a labor of love for all of the team members involved and all of the, you know, moving parts that are involved. But it's also something that we think about in terms of we shouldn't be doing this. And the fact that we are doing this is a problem. That's how you know your problem is. Why are the people who would go through the pipeline fixing the pipeline? Make it make sense. It's like, <laughs> it's like you're going, it's like you're driving on a road and at the same time you are fixing the road you're driving on. <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> what? That doesn't make any sense. And then somebody, the, the person who, the person who should be fixing the road is applauding you. Good job. I'm, you're doing such a great job. Recently, Chimamanda um, Ngozi Adiche, she was saying how when she was at Yale, they had papers to write and they had submitted them. And the professor, he was really impressed with this one paper. And so he looks at the class and he says, you know, something like, this was the best paper that I've read. Who wrote this? And then Chimamanda raises her hand and he just looks at her with a look and it was just sort of like, the comment was just sort of like, it was as if, you know, her perception, it was as if he couldn't believe that that work came from someone who looked like her. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. I had a, I had a professor, a lecturer rather, let me not give him too much credit. And this man on several different occasions, four, I can actually count on my fingers, four different <laughs> occasions told me I could not get a PhD and economics. What 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 am I thinking? I I don't and you know, he told me this as an advisor, right? He's the, he was the advisor of my department. And uh it's so funny. I'll be very transparent and say I told a group of stakeholders that this guy's a problem. He's telling people they can't do a PhD, doesn't make sense. And then, you know, my friends were like, Yeah, he told us that too. I said, oh, look at that. All of us are black, and he told us that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
And I said, y'all need to figure out what's going on with that. Amina, they ignored me. Fast forward to a year later. This man, same man, I took his class because it's easy, not because I like him. Took his class, did a presentation. He then asked all of us, what do we want to do after graduation? I said, I'm thinking about getting a PhD in economics, something economics related. The man tells me, a whole math major, do I understand the mathematical rigor of what I'm about to do? Wow. And I looked at him and I said, I'm a math major. <laughs> so yes. Also, I have done this, this, and this research at these institutions. He says, oh, okay. Interesting. And honestly, I don't even think he got it when I said that. It was humiliating in a way because he said that in front of all my classmates, about 20 people in the room. But it was the moment that I think it clicked to him that I was not kidding was when I was um, opening up a presentation for the same class and he saw my class schedule. And my class schedule was stacked. I had mathematical statistics, econometrics, boom, boom, boom. He says, whoa, whoa, go back. <laughs> and he's like, are you taking those classes? And I said, I told you, I'm a math major. Oh, okay. Listen, when I say that it's fundamentally racist to believe that people who don't look like you can do the work that you do, understatement of the year <laughs> it's worse than racist it's worse than racist because you're choosing to be you're choosing to say that your racism is objective it's not you just have a bias against people who don't look like you and you know i blame you but i also don't blame you because the institutions that perpetuate that um are the spaces that you occupy my announcement that of becoming the, the visiting, one of the visiting research scholars at the um, National Bureau of Economic Research was intentional. It was an intentional announcement, meaning that obviously I want to share that this is a really excellent opportunity that I have as a young researcher, but I also want people who don't believe that I should be in the space to know that I'm there. But I want you to see it that I can exist. Me, a young black woman with a young black man as my mentor can exist in this incredibly exclusive space. And you didn't think you would see it, but here we are. And so for me, that's really what it's about. It's about visibility. And it's about showing potential in who we are as a people. Because we've been living on this earth for longer than, you know, anybody really as like black people. And I feel like people just don't understand and will refuse to understand that black people, I don't want to say are magic, are hard workers who can do excellent work. And we know this because we, we know the value uh, that we add to spaces and the contributions that we can make. People love to forget that. Things that we use, things that we indulge in, things that we, we love, Black people. <laughs> no, I mean, not all of it, right? But my point but is But you're that, right. The pens, the traffic light, like Black and Latino people are responsible. <laughs> right. 
right? There is some kind of erasure of black people, especially black women. People love, to, someone told me this recently, he said, people love to talk about Martin Luther King Jr., but they don't like to talk about the women who got everybody together, organized all the food, organized the marsh itself, that, you know, or, like, you know, we're in the background. We don't like to talk about that. And so I think we're in this new age, you know, post Wakanda, <laughs> post Lupita Yongo, post, you know, all these fabulous black women where we are saying we're here. And we've been doing this work for a long time. And it's about time you gave us our credit. 